Over the past decade or so, the field of communication and media studies has become very focused on accounts of the newest, latest digital computing technologies. But what about alternative media, other kinds of media and practices by communities associated with this media? About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Clemencia Rodriguez in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome, everybody, to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with me today the legendary Clemencia Rodriguez. Clemencia is a professor in the Department of Media Studies and Production at Temple University where uh, she has been since uh, 2016. Uh, before that, she was professor at the University of Oklahoma. Before that, she was professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Clemencia got her bachelor's degree from Universidad Javeriana in Bogota, specializing in communication, and then got her master's and PhD from Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, um, in communication and development, her master's, and in international communication, um, her PhD. Uh, she is a leading scholar in uh, Latin American studies and in, in, in social movements, media, uh, activism, uh, author of 10 books. Um, one of them that has uh, received a lot of attention uh, is uh, Citizens Media Against Armed Conflict, Disrupting Violence in Colombia, published by University of Minnesota Press. Uh, the most recent uh, books co-edited with Nick Kuldry and several esteemed colleagues. Uh, it's a book that came out both in English and in Spanish. In Spanish uh, was Desigualdad y Luchas Comunicativas en Tiempos Digitales. Uh, it was a report, a global report on communication and social progress uh, that was published by CARG at the University of Pennsylvania, both cases in 2018. She has published numerous uh, dozens of journal articles and book chapters and is considered to be one of the leading figures in uh, Latin American media studies. Um, Clemencia, it's truly an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you for that amazing introduction. <laughs> Most deserved. Um, so Clemencia, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? 
Yeah, it's so interesting that you're asking that question because I just wrote a book chapter about that and I'm going to pitch the book here. Excellent. Um, Mujeres de la Comunicación. Um, and um, we, this is a, a compilation of um, essays about and by the um, the women scholars from Latin America who specialize in communication and media research. And uh, it was, it's edited by Claudia Magallanes, um, Paro Marroquin, Omar Rincon, and, uh, and myself. And uh, Fes Comunicacion published it. Um, it's uh, what I love about this, this publishing venue is that they publish for free and the PDF is available so it has articles about Rosa Maria Alfaro, Susana Kaiser, Sara Corona, Amparo Marroquín, Claudia Magallanes, Marita Mata, Paola, Paola Ricarte, Michelle Matelar, Beatriz uh, Solís, Inmaculata Vasallo de López, etc. And there's a chapter um, that I wrote about my own journey. And so it's fresh in my mind because I just wrote these. And, um, so um, the, my, my journey begins with a, with a big disappointment. I entered the BA in communication at Universidad Javeriana in Bogota in 1978. And um, thinking that I wanted to travel the world and that a profession that would allow me to travel the world was journalism. And so I wanted to be an international reporter like, I don't know, uh, Christian Amanpour or um, yeah, those, those legendary reporters that never, you know, seem like they don't have a home, right? And so I wanted to be like that. And it lasted, I think, a year after I came into university because if you remember, uh, those were the years, 1980 is the year when the Mike Wright Report was published. And one of my professors asked me to, um, to translate the introduction of the Mike Wright Report. He had received the book in English. The book had not been published in Spanish. And so he wanted to use the book or at least parts of the book in his classes. And so he asked me if I could translate it. And I read the intro of the McBride Report my second year in college. And, um, and that's triggered a huge wave of disappointment towards the mass media and, um, and many of our professors were, were having us read um, Armand Matelard, Paralera al Pato Donald, to read Donald Duck was like totally obligatory, required reading in our courses. We read Paulo Freire, we read um, Martin Barbero, we read uh, um, Antonio Pasquali from, from um, uh, Venezuela. And, and basically they were, it was a, like a very loud voice, like they were all saying the same, uh, which was that the media were a source of oppression and marginalization and just making things worse in, for Latin American communities. And so 
So very quickly, I realized that this idea of working for a mainstream media outlet was not for me. And at the same time, um, around the same time, my second or third year in college, um, I had an amazing professor from Chile, Vanessa Marmentini, and she taught, all, she taught a course on alternative media, what at the time was called Medios Alternativos, alternative media. And I was hooked. Um, and then, you know, then, then my, the rest of my, my um, undergrad years were all about exploring those other media. You know, I was, I, I became like disillusioned and disappointed with the mainstream media. So I started to look for these other media and started very quickly to realize that, you know, it was, it was very interesting to this idea of, um, of media technologies interacting with communities, not with corporate entities or with professional media makers, but with children in a neighborhood in the outskirts of Bogota or mothers in a, a rural area in Colombia or indigenous people. I mean, that, that idea of media technologies in the hands of people um, was, was really full of meaning. And then my first job after I graduated from um, college with an undergrad degree in communication, um, I went to work uh, for CINEP, Centro de Investigación y Educación Popular. And this is a, an NGO that's still there to this day, very prestigious and well known for its radical politics. And uh, another professor at Universidad Javeriana brought me there, Amparo Cadavid. She was my professor and she was working for CINEP. So she asked me to join her, um, assisting her in all kinds of alternative media and community communication projects. And uh, at one point, I worked there for six years. And at one point, I had a very kind of, I had a like one of those moments that becomes kind of an epiphany in the life of a person. And I've, I feel I'm being very redundant because I've told this story numerous times. <laughs> but um, what happened is that I work for the, what, what we called the unit of Comunicación Popular popular communication, meaning communication by and for the people. This NGO where I work was very Gramscian. And so it was all about praxis, where as researchers, our research was supposed to inform social movements and grassroots organizations. And our work with grassroots organizations and social movements was supposed to inform our research. And so we were helping all kinds of social movements with their media and communication practice. And at some point, these um, coffee co-op uh, people asked us to help them produce a video about the co-op. Uh, it was the beginning of the camcorder, the portable ca video camera. And so we had acquired one for our unit of Comunicación Popular and we, we were giving workshops. First, we had to learn ourselves. 
But then we were offering workshops and training grassroots organizations, community organizations, social movements in how to do video. And so this was, you know, another one of those calls. And so we agreed to do the training and help them produce a video. And a colleague and my, of mine at the time and I were kind of the ones assigned to go to this place about five hours from Bogota and, uh, and, and stay there, I don't know, three, four days doing the first of the training workshops. And we went to the small town near the, the co-op and stayed there. And uh, we were in communication with the co-op leaders and they told us, okay, we'll pick you up tomorrow very early because it's far away. And, and so they came to our little hotel in town at about six in the morning with meals because there was no road to get to this place. So we put all the equipment on one meal and Claudia got in one and I got in another one and we followed these, these guys who were um, coffee farmers, small, small coffee. I mean, when sometimes when, when people think coffee from Colombia, they imagine huge plantations, but a lot of coffee is actually in the hands of very small farms. And so uh, we followed these coffee farmers to their vereda, to their, to their place where, where their farms uh, were. And it was about a two hour ride. And we, we stayed there all day at the beginning, just you know, showing them how to turn the camera on, how to put it on a tripod, how to shoot, how to do a, 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 a pan or a different camera angles. And um, we wanted to, we did some exercises with lighting. So you know, if you're outside and the good light is good, then this is what happens. But now let's move inside to show what happens. And so at some point we moved into a kitchen and these farmhouses, generally the kitchen is a separate building that is very dark. It barely has any windows. So it was very dark inside. So we did some exercises shooting inside the kitchen so that they could see the difference in, in terms of managing the light. And uh, we did that, we, we shot in the coffee fields and their houses and the kids playing soccer and you know, all kinds of stuff, just exercises in how to, how to manage the camera. And around, uh, I don't know, 4 p.m., 3 p.m., something like that, we were, okay, you know, it's time to fold because we had to go back to the hotel and you know, it gets dark like around six or seven. And uh, someone asked, hey, can we, can we watch what we shot? And I had seen a TV, um, in a small TV in somebody's house. And uh, I realized I had all the necessary cables to connect the TV to the camcorder and use the camcorder as a video player. So I said, yeah, I mean, we can use that TV if the owner of the TV is, is willing to let us do it. And, the owner of the TV was fine. And so we went into their house and started, uh, you know, I started putting the plugging, uh, connecting the TV to the camcorder. And in, in, the, in the meantime, word got around that we were gonna see all the shots and people um, had seen us, right? The people had seen us coming and going with the camera, etc. And so people started just coming into this little house, into the living room where the TV was. 
And then when I finally, you know, had everything connected, I was, I was um, um, kneeling down because the TV was low to the, close to the ground. And so then I turned around and what I saw, and then I pushed play. And when I turned around, what I saw were all these people watching themselves. And that moment of, you know, their looks and their faces and their facial expressions and just the wonder that they expressed at watching themselves. It was the first time that they had seen themselves, their houses, their kids, uh, their coffee bushes on the screen in the a mediated version of themselves. It was just fascinating and I was hooked. And at some point, the woman whose kitchen we had gone in said, I never imagined that my kitchen could be so beautiful. And, you know, it just made me realize that it's a very complex process and that the theories that we had at the time in terms of alternative media and democratization of the media didn't do justice to the complexity of what happens when you when, when the media technologies are in the hands of community and all the complex interaction between technologies and media, I mean, technologies and people and the meaning making processes and uh, processes that, the, you know, uh, processes that trigger revising your image of who you are and, and revising what, what you think your environment is and your context and your house and your children. I mean, there's a whole uh, wave of processes that have to do with meaning and transformation of meaning that happen when, when communities appropriate media technologies and start producing their own media. And so that's where, you know, that's what put me on this path to kind of try to understand that and, 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 uh, and repeat again and again and again how important it is and how complex it is. And because people tend to disregard these as kind of a minor aspect in the world of media. And to me is the most important one. <laughs> Absolutely. What a fascinating story, the kitchen. I mean, I can only imagine um, your wonder seeing their wonder, right? Um, now, that must have been, I'm looking at, at um, your, your CV, so you finished in 84. That must have been 85, 86 or something like that, right? Around that exactly. time? Exactly. Oh, wow. You're <laughs> exactly. Because so, in 88, I came here. I was going to say, okay, how why that transition? I mean, because you could have gone many different paths, right? Um, um, why a graduate program? Why the US as opposed to other places where at that time there was more of a network in terms of Latin American scholars going to study uh, for graduate degrees, particularly France. Um, I mentioned Materag, but also, you know, other people are also Europe, Spain. It wasn't as common as it is today for uh, young Latin American scholars or aspiring scholars to come to the States, right? So yeah. how was that decision and, and why, uh, you know, Athens, Georgia, Athens, Ohio, sorry. I mean, why, why the University of, of why Ohio University? 
Yeah, it, it has all it has everything to do with networks. So, um, so this is the Stanford network. Um, so, um, my dean uh, in the in the Universidad Javeriana at the time was Joaquin Sanchez, who had done a PhD at Stanford and uh, connected with um, the Everett Rogers network. And so um, one of the students of Everett Rogers was, or is, uh, well, he was a student of Everett Rogers, um, Joseph Rota, who was the director of the Communication and Development Master's Program at Ohio University. And so when I, when I graduated and, work, and went to work for that NGO, which, you know, this may seem very weird for people listening to this, you probably don't think is that weird, but like a year after I graduated, I started teaching at the university, um, you know, a class here, a class there. So I never uh, really went away completely from my university, from my college. And so Joaquin Sanchez, Joaco, was very aware that I wanted to go study. Uh, there, were, there were things happening in the country and in my personal life that were kind of propelling me outside. And so Joaquin made the connection with Joseph Rota at the Communication and Development Master's Program at Ohio University. And they offer me a, I applied and they offer me um, a good scholarship. And so that's why I ended up going there. It was also at the time, I mean, I didn't know this at the time, but you know, it was at the time, the only master's program with a kind of an angle on communication, social change development with a very international approach to these um, topics. And so that was very attractive to me. And so then I just, I continued. Um, I loved Athens, Ohio. I totally fell in love with it, partly because it was such a contrast from uh, Bogota, Colombia at the time. I mean, you have to remember, this is the time of Pablo Escobar. We had bombs going off every day and horrific things happening every day. And all of a sudden I end up in this idyllic town in the middle of the mountains with cobblestone streets and where everyone says, hi, how are you on the street? And you don't see anything military. You don't see, you don't see, you know, I mean, there may be two policemen in Ohio, I mean, in Athens, Ohio, but I never saw them. So you never see green uniforms, you never see weapons. Uh, the, the fall in Athens with the um, Appalachia Mountains turning the ochres and oranges and the deer wandering, <laughs> that's like, where am I? <laughs> So, um, so it was very easy for me. I did a stint in Nicaragua for a year between my master's and PhD, but I really, I wasn't done with that in Ohio when I finished my master's. And so I stayed another five years, I think, until, yeah, until the completion of my PhD there. How, how was for a person from Latin America, in particular from Colombia, um, you know, beyond the fact that it, you know, it was safer and easier, right? How was culturally 
um, how the, the experience of being a graduate student there. Yeah, it, it was fascinating. Um, and, you know, like the um, earlier when I did the talk today and the um, 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 Center for Latinx Digital Media, um, I showed a slide of the colleagues I'm working with, and uh, there's Camilo Perez Quintero, who also graduated from the same master's program and PhD program, but last year. And so, you know, he has a much more recent experience. What like I was there in the uh, early 90s, and he was there, so it's almost 30 years apart. But we talk about the experience that it's almost the same. You know, we have a very similar experiences in Athens, Ohio. So first of all, and I, I became a Latin American. So I was a Colombian before going to Athens, Ohio. But Athens gave me the opportunity to really become a Latin American. And it's amazing how little we know about Latin America grow, growing up and going to school and college and everything in Latin America. So I learned Colombian geography, Colombian history, Colombian social movements, Colombian politics, but I had no idea what, you know, the history of the Southern Cone or the Caribbean or, you know, Bolivia or Brazil. Brazil was like a, another planet. And so, um, so I took many courses in Latin American studies and, and that gave me a perspective that I didn't have. And also it was an opportunity to connect with Latin Americans with, you know, my classmates came from Mexico, Argentina, Peru, um, Venezuela, Central America. And, and so it was, it was a constant interaction with them and learning about uh, learning about Mexico. I mean, there was some uh, some couple of years where I became obsessive about Mexico. I read every novel about Mexico, Elena Poniatowska. I read about social movements. Uh, I watched all the films about Mexico, and I ended up going to Mexico one of those years and doing a road trip all the way from um, from the border with Texas uh, all the way down to Morelia. Um, so, uh, so Athens, Ohio, even though it's a small town without students, Athens, Ohio is 5,000 people and it's in the middle of the mountains and it's a quaint little town, but it's, it, the university does an amazing job at maintaining a very dynamic international grad student class, especially the programs uh, that are linked to international studies. So African studies, Latin American studies, Asian studies, the development studies, the communication for development uh, master's program, all these graduate programs are very international. So in our courses, in our classes, I probably had two or three American classmates but the rest were from Africa, from Central America, from South America, from Asia, from Europe, um, you know, from all over the place. And so it was 
it was a fascinating experience of learning from faculty and the readings and everything, but a lot of learning from my classmates. And then we hung out together all the time. I mean, there was not a weekend where we didn't have a potluck at somebody's house. We were all very equally poor. So it was very democratizing that no one had any money. So it was always potluck, you know, so we could eat and buy some cheap alcohol and lots of dancing. Um, for the first time, I, I, I got to know African music, which, you know, in growing up in Colombia and even going to college in Colombia at the time, that was not something that was accessible. And so it was really exciting time. It was, uh, it was, it was a fascinating time of learning and interacting with people my age who came from similar walks of life, you know, had work in media or NGOs or government uh, positions, entry government positions, and then came to Ohio to do a master's, kind of exactly like my own story, but coming from Africa and from different parts of Latin America, it became really, really interesting. Okay, and when it was when, when you finished your PhD, you you went to UT San Antonio, correct? Yeah. Did you consider going back to Latin America? How was that transition? Mm. Right, you you're set on staying in the stay in the states. Do you consider going to Europe? No, um, I Europe never. I don't know why, but you know, I never consider going to Europe. Um, the reason I decided to stay was very practical. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I never considered going back to any other Latin American country except for Colombia. And at the time, being a professor in Colombia was living a very precarious life. So you, my professors uh, either were, um, had like, jobs and media or law firms or something like that and taught a course, but they didn't live off teaching. Or the ones who lived, who made a living of teaching had to have five different jobs in five different universities, uh, couldn't afford a car, so they had to take a bus and they were always running late and going from one university to another to teach courses. And, you know, there was no, not even mention of research, no, nothing. Um, it was very, very precarious. And so I was not willing to do that. At the same time, I could see what that, you know, in Athens, Ohio is such a communal life. So we spend uh, all our social life was in the houses of our classmates or in the houses of our professors. Our professors had, had uh, social events all year and invited us all the time. So I could see how uh, a professor in an American university <laughs> lives and was very different. And so uh, so, so that, that's what kept me here, you know, it was, it was, um, literally a question of money, you know, of, uh, of, 
of conditions, of labor conditions. Um, and nowadays, uh, things are very different in Colombia. Um, and in some years, depending on the exchange rate of the dollar, but you know, things have formalized in Colombia. And for example, Camilo Perez Quintero, who graduated from my same PhD program a year ago, decided to go back and he's a professor at Universidad del Norte. And, uh, and he works under fairly good work working conditions. So things have changed, but at the time, um, no, I, I was not gonna do that. Okay. now. I want to continue the journey chron chronologically at some point, but I, I want to jump to, to now. I want to follow up on, on something that you said. I mean, the, the lifestyle, um, the, the, the academic everyday life that you mentioned, right? Uh, very communal, but there was also a lot of um, fluidity in social interactions, uh, you know, professors, you know, students, etc. That was, so you graduated in 94, that was, that's more than a quarter century ago. Has that changed? Has that stayed the same? How have you seen, uh, you know, the academic life evolving in the U.S. over the past, you know, almost 30 years uh, that you've been in the professoriate? Um, I think it stayed the same, but I would make a huge distinction between rural and urban. So, for example, at the University of Oklahoma, where I was until five years ago, uh, it's still very communal. And I think it's because it's, you know, it's, it's Norman, Oklahoma, it's a small town, there's not much to do. And so people uh, gravitate to one another, to each other. And so it's very common in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, the University of, of Oklahoma for, you know, professors. I'm remembering a friend of mine who's a professor of film and um, at least once a semester he has an undergrad class all for pancakes on Sunday morning, you know, and they cook for pancakes for and the entire 20 undergrads. And uh, we had um, we had social events at, at at our houses all the time. My house was party central, and it was always professors and grad students, not the undergrads, but the grad students all the time. The master students and the PhD students, especially the PhD students. Um, we um, yeah, and and I'm, I'm, I used to teach at the the women and women's and gender studies program, and that was a very tight knit community. For example, where uh, we uh, we congregated, we we met in in each other's houses all the time for barbecues and potlucks and. Uh, oven baked pizza and you know things like that it was very common now here in philadelphia is very different um, i think people have a very very active social life uh, everyone you know the undergrads the grads the professors and so i think there it's a totally different lifestyle much more fragmented and um, yeah we get together uh, mostly professors once in a great while and uh, but 
you know, because we all have other circles that eat up a lot of our time. And uh, we, um, and the, um, the, the students too, you know, they, so there's no time and also getting to each other's houses, you know, in Athens, Ohio or Norman, Oklahoma, it's a question of seven minutes, but here it can be an hour and 15 minutes to get to one of my colleagues' houses in the suburbs or in the, in the ones who live in New Jersey or, you know, and so it's a big to do, it's a big operation. Um, and so it's less common, but I, I more than changes in throughout time, I, my understanding and my experience is that it relates to urban or, you know, kind of um, campuses that are in more and small, in small towns. It's like the small town dynamic versus the big city dynamic. Okay, that's super interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, because what you're describing about um, your experience at Ohio University is somewhat similar to my experience at Cornell when I was a graduate student. But of course, that's another sort of rural or you know, environment. Ithaca is 30,000 people. Um, so uh, it's very different from, from an urban campus. Another dimension of the change uh, that I want to get your opinion on is the the presence of Latin America in communication and media studies um, as an object of inquiry and uh, as you know people from the region and people interested in the region not necessarily people who are from the region but nonetheless are interested in the region Sally Hughes Summer Harlow etc etc there are more and more colleagues who are uh, interested in that so how have you seen you know the place of Latin America within the field uh, evolve over time, if if at all, do you think it has changed? It hasn't changed. What is your you know your observation about that? Uh, it's I think it's it's been frustrating. I don't think it has grown to the point that it should. Um, it's always, I mean the. Um, I don't know. My perception, my personal perception is, Latin, is that Latin America or research about media and communication in Latin America is still perceived as some kind of exotic place, you know, that people may be interested to hear or my colleagues who are American or European may be interested to hear about it as, as something exotic, but not really something that is going to make an impact in their own research or something that, uh, that uh, should be in interaction with their own research to you know, cross-pollinate or something that they can learn from. I don't think that has happened. And, and I think there's very few researchers. I mean, at the time when we started, when I was a master's and PhD student, there were the few ones, right? Federico Suberbi, the Reina Chement. Um, I can't remember all the names now, but, um, but there were some and now there are some, but <laughs> I think we're still, you know, it's, it's very, very few and far between. Um, it strikes me again and again and again and again. This is like an annual frustration is to get to the LASA conference, Latin American Studies conference, and 
the the number of uh, panels and papers on media and communication is just minimal. Um, so we almost don't have a presence in LASA. So even our Latin American, uh, so there's like marginalization on both sides. Our Latin Americanist colleagues, the historians, geographers, sociologists, political scientists, don't think that media and communication is significant. And our media and communication colleagues who are not from Latin America, they don't think that media and communication in Latin America is significant. So I've constantly throughout my professional life, I've always feel the kind of pressure to marginalize the what I do all the time. I got used to it, basically. <laughs> you know, I don't expect different. So, so then I have a two-part follow-up question. So, first one is why do you think this is the case, and second, what sort of strategies have you pursued that you know to to manage this marginalization that have been helpful to you? Yeah. Uh, so, it my experience of of U.S. academia is that is very U.S. centered. And uh, not only media and communication, but you know, in general, and media and communication scholarship tends in the U.S. tends to be very U.S. centered. In some places, more than others, um, the worst for me was the University of Oklahoma. Definitely, I mean, <laughs> that I mean, the stories of marginalization at the University of Oklahoma are just a joke you know, in terms of how, like, to what extent, to the extent of, you know, exoticizing and the extent of ignorance from people with PhDs and published scholars, you know, about Latin America and I mean, just like abhorrent, you know, <laughs> like unbelievable. Um, so, so that's kind of the extreme, I think, but in a lot of my dealings with US academics, um, it's very self-centered, it's very narcissistic and very kind of, you know, looking towards the inside and there's still, you know, the grandiose notions of America as the best place. And so of course everyone should study it because it's supposed to be a model for everyone else and even critical scholars. And, you know, I mean, you can see the undertones of those beliefs, right? I mean, they're not ideas, but they're more like beliefs, attitudes. And so, so you, 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 you perceive, I mean, I perceive that all the time. And so it, uh, you can tell that they're not taking your scholarship seriously. And, you know, you, you are introduced as a renowned scholar or whatever. I mean, the introduction and whatever you do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The belief is still the main lens through which they're going to look at you and what you do, you know, as this faraway place. Who would be interested in that, this exotic place? that when I tell them in Oklahoma, when I used to tell them that in five hours I would be in Bogotá, which is almost the same distance from here to Los Angeles, they were like, what? 
five hours or four and a half hours? How can that be? Because they, in their minds, the geographic distance between Oklahoma and Colombia, the, in their minds, this has to be like two days away on planes, right? I mean, in, it's such a far away planet that of course it has to take her two days to get there. And when I tell them that it's four and a half hours away, I, I go, yeah, it's like 45 minutes to Houston and three and a half hours from Houston to Bogota. No, really? I mean, always again and again and again. And, uh, and so these, uh, yeah, so, so it's, it's something that you have to live with all the time. It's not gonna go away. This is a message for, you know, young scholars from Latin America out there listening. Um, and strategies that I developed to cope with it, to go back all the time and find academic communities that are not, um, you know, I mean, Latin American academic communities, both in Latin America and also in the US. So, you know, some of my best friends, Susana Kaiser, who's from Argentina, um, at the University of um, uh, San Francisco, um, Antonio, oh my God, I'm forgetting his last name. Um, Antonio was a friend of mine and colleague at the, at, in San Antonio and Austin at the time. Um, there's so many scholars uh, that, uh, and we gravitate towards each other. And so, you know, finding community there, uh, because, you know, when you talk to Susana about your research and everything, their level of understanding is so much more profound and engaged. Uh, and so I need that, right, on a daily basis. And so, um, so I try to, you know, develop these friendships and collaborations with Latin American scholars working and living in the United States, but also going back and being part of FELAFAX, you know, the, the Latin American Communication and Media Conferences, the little bit that uh, there is at uh, LASA, uh, you know, all kinds of venues where, where I can present my work in academic circles that are made by, you know, that, that are Latin American. And so the level of understanding and the level of dialogue and the level of not having to explain everything from scratch is so much better and it's it's nourishing. Okay, very interesting. And and in, in this, you know, time that you've been in the US, I mean, Many uh, Latina, Latino, Latinx uh, scholars cite your work as very influential to them. Um, and um, you also, during your presentation at the seminar today, refer to, for instance, Mari Castañeda's uh, conceptual framework as being generative for your own work in, um, in Colombia. So how have you seen the relationship between Latin American scholars, Latin American communication studies and research about Latin America and research about Latina, Latino, Latinx, USA. Um, how has been your personal experience of that you know, intersection and your, your, your more analytical observations of that? Yeah, so to me, the six years I spent in San Antonio, Texas was like another PhD in Latinx 
everything because it's such a hub and I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, you know, it was Latinx, mostly Mexican-American and Chicano, but still, you know, I mean, I came to this country, I lived in Athens, Ohio. So, so we're totally, uh, uh, totally apart from any connection to any Latinx community. So, so going to, to San Antonio was a, a huge experience of immersion. And, um, um, and so that was kind of where, where I discovered the Latinx world, uh, the politics, the history, the diverse communities. Obviously, I was immersed in the middle of the Chicano community of San Antonio, but I started reading and researching. And so, you know, I, I, I educated myself on the differences between the Cuban Americans and the Puerto Ricans and, you know, all the different communities. I started reading all the Latinx novels, you know, one after the other. Uh, I have my favorites with uh, Ache Ovejas, um, um, our own Sandra Cisneros, uh, Cara uh, Caramelo is one of my favorite novels. Uh, you know, all kinds of, um, and so many women writers too, right? Um, so, so I read a lot of that. I, I ended up teaching a course in San Antonio on Latinx media and communication. So I watched all the Latinx films started, starting with I Am Joaquin, which is supposed to be the first Latinx film ever uh, made in the U.S. And, um, uh, but it, it, it always amazes me the lack of bridges that are between the Latinx community, the Latin Americanists in the U.S. and Latin America. And I, I wish that's something, you know, that I don't even know how to approach, like how to make it happen. These three different academic circles are so ripe for dialogue and cross-pollination and learning from each other, but the bridges don't exist at all. I don't, I never, I, or maybe they exist, but I haven't found them. I don't see them anywhere, you know? Things are Latin American or Latinx, but there, and there's so much confusion too. So for example, um, you cannot tell you the number of times that I have to clarify that I'm not a Latina scholar uh, because people assume that because I'm from Colombia, I'm a Latina scholar. And I'm like, no, wait. Being from Colombia is totally different from being from growing up and, and going to school in a Latinx community inside the US. And so there's, there's a lot of confusion about that among Latin Americans, among US in general, um, among, uh, yeah, everyone. And, uh, and, there's, and I think it's because there's no bridges, there's no dialogue, there's no, there's, there's no conversation happening there. And, you know, it's very sad. It's, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be that way. So I then, what do you think? I would like to throw the question back to you because this is something that really 
interests me. Yes, so it is to me the matter of all questions uh, when it comes to these topics. And um, I'm in the process of trying to understand um, one of the advantages of having all of these conversations with all of these esteemed colleagues, some of whom are Latina, Latino, Latinx scholars, some others are Latin America living in the States, some others are uh, media scholars in Latin America, is that I uh, get to ask these questions, I get the different answers and, and try at, at some point, hopefully, to come up um, with um, with, with my own answer, the, the, the center that we launched last year in part tries to uh, see, to explore whether such a bridge or set of bridges would be possible. And if so, the shape they would take. Um, wonderful. But it is Great. just uh, an, the beginning of an exploration. Um, uh, I don't know, but I think it's a, as you said, it's, a, it's I mean, it's, um, the, the, I think the, the, the moment is ripe for more connection, the connection that respects difference and autonomy yeah. and diversity, but nonetheless, that um, sort of uh, probes areas of intersection, right? Mm -hmm. um, as if they were a Venn diagram, you know, across yeah. three right. circles. Right. Um, and digital media, in a sense, um, are a particularly potentially fruitful object because um, you know they travel across space very easily and they're used in everyday life by diasporic communities to connect to the homeland uh, in a multi-generational way mm -hmm. right? Um, right right so but I don't have much more of an elaborated answer beyond that uh, other than it is a topic that interests me and that uh, I'm trying to, to wrap my head around. Uh, but I agree with you that it is a tremendous uh, opportunity. So, so Clemencia then, having said this, if you have magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you to like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? Yeah, um, so, that's that's such a complex question because I don't know if I can choose one thing, but um, I I wish for a field that would exponentially increase its ability to listen, um, to listen to to how communities communicate and uh and to 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 kind of minimize if possible the obsession on media and technology and refocus on human communication and um uh the 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 beauty of human communication and its complexity and creativity and of course, technology is part of it. But you know, I always tell my students that to me, a tattoo is technology, and uh, a dance is technology, and hairstyles is technology that makes meaning and communicates. So um, I would, I would, I would wish for um, an expansion on how we understand technology. 
and uh, also uh, refocus on uh, how communities communicate and the the creativity that goes into that communication and the connecting with ancestral knowledges and con connecting with culturas populares, with cultural practices and connecting with the natural world in order to produce communication and to make communication happen. And technology should be kind of a, um, could should be kind of an afterthought, not but the, the scholarship and the research and the design and everything, the policies cannot start with technology. I think that's that's an illusion. It's not, it's, it's, I mean, we're wasting so much money and we're wasting so much brain power and we're wasting so many projects when the projects begin with technology and end with communication and it should be at the at the the reverse you know you start with communication and end with technology and so um yeah i mean it it might it worried uh, this this worry about the obsession with technology started when i when a few years ago i started paying a lot of attention to the research coming out um about media and digital platforms and social movements and the fortunately it shifted because now you know the more and more i hear that it's not about facebook and it's not about twitter it's about political agency and it's about rage and it's about dissent and it's about revolution and not twitter but at the beginning uh during the arab spring and indignados if you remember, I mean, there was this enthusiasm with these platforms. And so from that moment on, I've been on a crusade to shift from technology to communication, you know, and uh, it's weird because that's exactly what Jesus Martirio Marbero said, right? One of my mentors is it's not about the media, it's about the mediations, right? Uh, and so, yeah, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it's exactly how he said it. And he said it even before digital platforms were with us, but it's very applicable now to the world in which we live. Uh, it's all about communication and we should start with communication and end with the platforms and not the other way around. All right, thank you very much, Clemencia. This is absolutely, has been a fascinating, truly fascinating conversation. I, I thank you again for sharing your journey and your, your knowledge uh, with us. And I wanna thank the listeners for staying with us to the end and invite you to the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you so much, Pablo. Thank you. Thank you. Muchas gracias. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mona Matassi.